parked his brand new Lexus in front of his office building, ready to show it off to all of his colleagues. And as he got out, a truck passed too closely and completely tore off the door on the driver's side. Immediately, he grabbed his cell phone, called 911, and hysterically, as the policeman pulled up, he was ranting and raving about how damaged his vehicle was, how it will never be the same even after it's fixed, and on and on he went about what had happened to his car. The policeman looked at him and said, you know, it's amazing to me how materialistic you've become. The man went, what are you talking about? He said, well, you probably didn't notice that when the door of your car was ripped off by the truck, that you lost your arm from your elbow down. And you're bleeding profusely all over the place. And at that, the man looked at his arm that was missing, and he went, oh, man, I can't believe it. Where's my Rolex? (laughs) Did I hear a hiss? Man, point, there's a point. The point is this. It's so easy to become blinded to spiritual truth by material things. The Bible warns of this often, and one such warning is found in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We read these words. It says, but, there, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. As I thought of this passage, two men from the pages of Scripture immediately came to mind. The first is that of the rich young ruler. If you recall, the rich young ruler had uh, refused. He turned his back on Jesus. And he refused to receive the eternal because of that which was temporal. The Bible says he was rich. And he turned and he walked away because he was a man of much possessions. Jesus had rooted out the main problem of the man's heart. He said, I obeyed your laws since I was a child. What is it that I need to do to get into heaven? And Jesus looked at him and said, sell all your possessions. Leave it all behind and come and follow me. And the man, instead of receiving the eternal, it was satisfied and settled for the temporal. And what he did was he basically revealed to him that even though he believed that he had kept the laws of God, the first and foremost commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we'd have no other gods before him. And Jesus, in that one question, exposed the evil that was in his heart. Another man is found in the pages of Scripture in Acts chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, turn as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. We come across a man in Acts chapter 8 who also had a problem, as we will see, with settling for the temporal and not receiving the eternal. As we get to this passage, it will help us to address a very personal and yet a very applicable question and that is this is yours a saving faith in Acts chapter 8 starting with verse 9 we look at these words it says now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying this man is what is called the great power of God And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after having been baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
for he had not fallen yet upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray, Lord, that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for for me yourself, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. One of the most fearful realities in all of Scripture is that some who think they are saved will be eternally lost. Thinking they're on the narrow way of saving truth, they're on the broad way of destruction. Thinking they're on their way to heaven, they're ultimately on their way to final condemnation in a place the Bible calls or we refer to as hell or the lake of fire. They'll one day hear from the Lord Jesus Christ the most shocking and terrifying words that any human could ever hear In Matthew 7, Jesus said this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Thinking they're on the narrow path that leads to heaven, they're on the broad way of religion that leads to destruction. And this passage helps us to identify that to their horror, they will find that the very gates of heaven are confused by that which leads to hell. See, whenever the gospel is preached, it will inevitably produce genuine saving faith and also false faith. The Bible repeatedly warns us of this truth. In many cases, for example, the Bible tells us that the seed of the Word of God will fall on good soil and also on bad soil. That there will be branches who abide in the vine and there will be those who are cut off and burned. There will be those with working faith and those who, as the Bible claims, have demonic faith. There will be those to whom Jesus discloses Himself and to those whom He he does not entrust Himself. There are those, the book of Hebrews says, who have faith to the persevering of the soul and those who shrink back to destruction. There will be wheat and there will be tares. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Because what God wants us to know with great certainty is that there will be those who have a counterfeit faith. What I call counterfeit Christians. And they will be among those who are genuine. There will be those who are, who are professors of faith, meaning they profess to have come to faith, but they are not possessors of the Holy Spirit and eternal life that's offered only by God. And the difficult thing is, it's hard to tell the two apart. And in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us a parable that helps us to identify this great spiritual truth. A spiritual truth that causes me and I hope causes you to ask yourself the question, is the faith that I claim to have, is it truly in the category of a saving faith? The Bible often tells us to examine our own hearts to see if we are really in the faith that leads to salvation. And in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable to help us understand the difference between the two. He said he presented in verse 24 another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed a good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? 
Well, then how then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. It says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will, send to the, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into the barn. You know, as often happened, the disciples missed the point and requested an explanation. I praise God every day for those guys. Because, you know, it's so easy to miss the point. And the wonderful thing about them missing the point is it helps us to now understand the point because Jesus will clearly explain the point. And, uh, and that's the one thing you can't get away from. When he explains it as clearly as he does, you can't try to read into it something that's not there. And in verse 36, he says, Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. We've been talking about it among ourselves, and we just don't get it. So would you please help us understand the point that you're trying to make? It says, And he answered and said to them, Here's how it goes. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. It says, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. If you turn back to Acts chapter 8 in this particular text, it presents an example of genuine saving faith, which we'll look at next time in the Ethiopian eunuch. But first it presents the first known satanic attempt to sow a tear in the church. And he's identified by the name of Simon. It's a basic principle in Scripture that wherever God sows true believers, Satan will eventually come around and sow his counterfeits. This was true of the ministry of John the Baptist. It was true even of the ministry of Jesus. All we've got to do is consider Judas. It was true also of the ministry of Paul, as we'll see in our further study of the book of Acts. The enemy comes as a lion to devour, and when that approach fails... And persecution does exactly the opposite of what he tries to make it do, which is to silence the message or the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he changes tactics at that point. Just think about our study in the book of Acts. When Satan or Satanic or opposition arose to try to silence those who were telling the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fire of the early church was spread like embers in the wind, and they were blown all over the place, and the fire spread everywhere. And so Satan re, re, kind of reevaluated the strategy and thought, well, you know what, it's not working to oppose them from the outside, so I need to get some people on the inside working for me. And that's exactly what we'll see here, because the Bible says that when that approaches a roaring lion doesn't work, then he comes disguised as an angel of light. As we look at this passage, we'll see that he uses a man by the name of, of Simon to try to accomplish his purposes. And just as, terror, as a terror is hard to distinguish from wheat, so a professor of the faith is hard to, de- to determine sometimes from, that who, from those who are possessors of genuine eternal life. You know, stop and think about this in this, in this passage in Acts. We're going to learn that even someone as discerning as Philip allowed this man to become a part of what was going on. 
because he demonstrated, at least initially, three signs of a genuine believer. Number one, he heard the message and he believed. Number two is he was obedient to the point of baptism. And number three, he continued on in the direction that they were going. And it wasn't until downstream when he began to offer money for spiritual gifts that he exposed the true condition of his heart. And so as we look at this, the passage reveals four glaring errors or uh, massive faults in Simon's theology or the way that he viewed God. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is how did someone who was so close to the truth end up so far away? And these four massive faults in his theology, as we'll take a look at them, have to do with the fact he had a wrong view of himself, he had a wrong view of salvation. He had a wrong view of the Holy Spirit. And he also had a wrong view of sin. It's important for us to identify that so we can examine our own hearts and ask ourselves the difficult and tough questions. And the question really at this point is this. Is my faith a saving faith? Is it a faith that, as the Bible defines, will lead me absent from the body one day into the very presence of God to enjoy Him for all of eternity? And so as we look at this, I want to take a look at them uh, one at a time. First, the first thing that we notice is that the Bible identifies the fact that Simon had a wrong view of himself. He had a wrong view of himself. And it's found in verses 9 through 11. If we've got that in front of you, let's take a look at that again. In Acts, he goes, Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were given Simon attention, saying, this man is what's called the great power of God. And they were given him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. A wrong view of man keeps multitudes of folks from saving faith. The view that man is essentially good. I'm okay, you're okay. We're all okay. We all have our faults, but it's not enough to keep us from accomplishing that which we want to accomplish, which is ultimately one day if there's a place, if there is a God and there is heaven, don't worry about it, we're all covered. See, that mentality is both pervasive and it's also damning. I want to ask a question by a show of hands. How many of you, have you have presented biblical truth to people in your life, responded, have had them respond with, uh, but you know what, but I'm a good person? How many of you look at, I mean, just look around how pervasive that is. As we challenge them and confront them with the truth of the Word of God, it's inevitable we will have people in our life who say, but you know what, but I'm a good person. I don't do anything bad. I mean, it's not that bad. In fact, I know I don't do as bad as the, this guy that I know. You should hear about this guy at my office. Oh, man, the stuff he's got going on, man, I'm, I'm a saint compared to him. And so we've got this mentality that, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, none of us are perfect, but that's okay. The problem with that is, is that the Word of God is very clear. Those who reason that, you know what, God, you will accept my good works. The Bible says that your good works, or you're trying to clothe yourself with your own good deeds and your own good works, that garment of good works is like a filthy rag in my sight. There's nothing good. There's nothing good in you and there's nothing good in me. The Bible says that none of us are righteous, no, not one, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That just as Adam, through Adam, sin entered into the world, all of us are guilty by association of being members of the human race. That we're all tainted with sin from birth. And the Bible says that because of that, there's nothing good in any one of us. You know, people don't want to hear that message, even though inherently they know in their heart that what's being said is true. 
They'll try to debate it. They'll try to argue it. But you know what? If they just take a, just step aside and cease striving and know that He's God and examine their hearts, they'll know that that message is true at its very foundation. And the evidence is overwhelming in the world. If men and women are so good, then why is this world so wicked? All you've got to do is turn on the news. All you've got to do is pick up the newspaper. All you've got to do is listen to what goes on at your office, your place of business, your school, in your own family, the evil and the wickedness that goes on, and how in the world can anybody in a good conscience stand there and say, but we're getting better. God's nailed us exactly where we are. He understands our true condition. And the problem as we look at this is, God's view of us is that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Those who fail to see themselves as sinners will see no need for a Savior. Those who do not understand that they have offended a holy and righteous God will see no need to turn to Him and ask for His forgiveness. That's the world that we live in. The point of this is simple. Simon was such a man. He had an inflated view of himself. And in fact, the Bible says, do not think so highly of yourself as to affect sound judgment. He thought more highly of himself than he should. And the reason is evident in the text, and that is this. For a number of years, he had been doing his magic tricks. And his magic was empowered probably and possibly even by Satan. We know that from 2 Thessalonians that Satan can be an imitator of powerful miracles. And the bottom line is this, is he started believing his own press clippings. You know, he was doing all this amazing stuff and people started to follow him and he had big crowds that followed him everywhere that he went and one thing led to another to the point what? That he went around claiming that he was great. He claimed to be great. It's kind of like when I was a kid watching Muhammad Ali fight everywhere that he went and every fight, I am the greatest! You know, when you start to believe that after a while. You start to believe your press clippings. It's like, man, you know what? I'm going to knock him out in three. And you go out and do it, and the next thing you know, you're thinking, man, I am invincible. I'm like God. Simon had that mentality. Man, I am so great. And if you miss it, let me just tell you how great I am. That's what he was all about. That was his own view of himself. You know, in the days of the early church, sorcerers and magicians were numerous and influential uh, they worked wonders, they performed healings, they did many of the same things that the, the apostles were doing, they did many of the same things that Jesus did. And in fact, oftentimes, people would look at these acts of magic or these miraculous things, and many people would use it as well they should have to try to identify who the promised one of God was. They knew that God had promised to send a Savior. They knew that God had promised one day that the Savior would do certain things. In fact, John the Baptist, his question of Jesus was, hey, his disciples, ask him, is he's the one? And Jesus said, tell John, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk. You know, the things that you see me do, there were signs to point to what? The spiritual truth that he was who he claimed to be. And so there were many who looked at those signs and said, this must be the Savior. Well, they were looking at the signs that Simon were doing and they were identifying him because of the signs that he did. He must be the great one of God. And so they turned to him and followed him as if he was Jesus Christ himself. And unfortunately, he knew he wasn't, but he still believed that he was. He talked himself into it. And in fact, the term that we see here, he actually claimed that he was God. See, Simon loved the attention. Simon loved to be first. Just stop and think about that for a second. He loved to be first. 
Now contrast Simon to God's servants as they've been identified thus far in our study. For example, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a second, and we'll learn more about the Apostle Paul, but I want you to notice something that he had to say about his own self and his own ministry. He had a view of himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 1 through 5. He writes to the church at Corinth and says, When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You notice one thing that's true of the great servants of God, they all deflect attention from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, when, they, when he saw Jesus coming, he pointed to those who were following him, the multitudes of people, and he said, Behold, look carefully over there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase and I must decrease. Focus on Him and forget about me. Consider and compare Simon to Stephen that servant of God, who as we learned a few weeks back, the qualities of a godly man, the first and foremost quality was that the man was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He considered others first and foremost. He considered Jesus Christ to be more important than himself. He had the same attitude that was in Jesus. And he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he considered others as more important than himself. Other people came first, and he wasn't even a consideration. Consider Philip, whose miracles were empowered by God and were used to glorify Christ, as were all the miracles the apostles did. None of them took any credit. They all deferred attention and credit, and they all pointed to the fact that they did what they did, empowered by God, so that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Compare him now to Simon, the sorcerer who was energized by Satan and he used what he did to magnify himself. See, Simon's hold on the people of Samaria was complete. Notice that if you go back to Acts chapter 8. It says from the the smallest to the greatest, they were all giving this man attention, calling himself the great power of God. The title shows that Simon claimed deity for himself. In fact, historical records indicate that Simon was the founder of and the early founder of Gnosticism. We read this, the first two teachers to propagate Gnostic ideas within Christian circles were Simon and his successor, Meander. Unlike later and more famous representatives of Gnosticism, both Simon and Meander claimed divinity for themselves. According to Acts, this this passage in Acts chapter 8, Simon called himself the great power of God. The Greek term that he used, dunamis, was used by later more orthodox theologians in reference to both the Son and the Holy Spirit. You'll recall from our study in the book of Romans that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto salvation for all who believe. The power of God, the Spirit of God is the power, dynamite of God. He called himself the dynamite of God. What a blasphemous thing for him to do. Equating himself to be equal to God. His perverted view of himself gave Satan an opportunity to use this man to sow tares in the early church. You know, it's interesting. I don't know too many people who would claim to be God 
in our conversations with those who claim to be good, none of them have ever in my conversations claimed to be God. Yet, I still challenge us to consider something, and the simplicity of this message is this. If we do not submit to God and to His authority, then we are claiming to be equal to God and oftentimes greater than Him, that we can do what we want to do when we want to do it. We would never come out, as Simon did, and say, I am the greatest. I am God. We wouldn't do that. All we do is just refuse to submit to His authority in our life. And in essence, we come through at the back door saying the same thing. You know what? I am God. I don't care what He says. I don't care what He wants me to do. I don't care how narrow the way is to to salvation. We're all going to enter by the broad gate. And the world around us says, hey, listen, all roads lead to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter who you believe. Doesn't matter, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. We're all going to be there. And God says, you fool. We're not. The one thing that keeps us back is the sin of pride. See, the one thing that kept Simon from submitting his will to God's will was that he was a proud man. The Bible has much to say about the evil of pride. Job 35.12 says they cry out, but he doesn't answer because of the pride of evil men. The psalmist points out that the wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God. All of his thoughts are there is no God in Psalm 10.4. He later implores the Lord to cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Proverbs 6, 16-19 describes seven things the Lord hates. Heading the list is haughty eyes. Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way. Proverbs 16:5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16:18 warns that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the stumbling. Paul advises that anyone who thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And on and on and on, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The point of this is very simple, and that's a proud person cannot have saving faith. It's impossible. You can't be proud and sense your need for forgiveness. One of the most powerful invitations to sinners, James wrote in James 4, 6 through 10, these words. But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Only a humble person, aware of all the inadequacies, aware of all our shortcomings, aware of the sin that's in our life, have that sense of lostness that drives us to God. Only those who are broken in spirit The Bible says it's the poor in spirit, not the proud in heart, who experience saving faith. See, and nothing short of a true estimate of ourself and our own wickedness wickedness before God can lead to a broken and contrite heart that God says He'll never despise. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ if there isn't a recognition of sin in the sinner's life. We don't add Jesus to our life to balance things out because we got something missing. The gospel that's so 
permeates our culture isn't the gospel at all. It's a false gospel that even Paul warned the Galatian church about, and that's not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he couldn't believe that they had abandoned the gospel so quickly for a gospel that wasn't a gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ starts with the recognition that all men are sinners and guilty before God and in need, great need of a Savior and forgiveness. Simon didn't see that in his own life. He thought he was great. How in the world, why in the world would Simon turn to God in, in brokenness and ask for forgiveness when he thought he was God himself? There are many today who do the same thing. They come to God on their own terms. Pray a prayer, sign a card, come down front, you know, missing something in your life, add something to it, mix and stir, and boy, you're going to feel better. But a broken sinner, man, is broken and contrite. And recognizing the sin in our own life that causes us to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and to seek out His forgiveness. See, Simon not only had a wrong view of himself, but he also had a wrong view, which comes naturally, of salvation. I mean, if you'll notice in verses 12 and 13, he had a wrong view of salvation. And, it's, and, you know, and, that, and that comes to reason that he'd have a wrong view of salvation. If he had a wrong view of self, he certainly wouldn't understand the, nece- the necessity to be saved from sin. Verses 12 through 13, we read this, But when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Simon was a man of immense power, but notice verse 12 is a powerful statement. But, you know what? While Simon's power was great, Philip's power was greater. Because Philip's power was the power of God. But when they believed Philip, even as great as he was... The people who followed Simon knew one thing. There was something missing in his message. There was something just not right about his message. We may feel good and we may follow him around, but you know, at the end of the day, when I'm laying in bed in the silence of my own life and I'm examining my heart, there's something missing in my heart that his message does not provide. When Philip came and declared the truth of the word of God and God empowered him as, as he empowered him to do the signs that he did so that they would, uh, they would accredit the message, so to speak, Man, when they believed and they received the message, their lives were transformed. See, the wrong view of salvation is that somehow or another, what we see on the outside is really what's going on in the inside. We're all caught up with the illusion of the things that are happening. See, Simon, man, his, his star was fading fast. And as his star was fading fast, he came up with a brilliant idea that most people come up with, and that's this. Hey, if you can't beat him, might as well join him. Where do you sign up? I want to be part of this new movement. And I want to stay close to the inner circle so I can find out what's really going on because he's going to expose himself later that the only thing I want is to be able to do the same tricks that they're doing. And I'm going to offer money for it. We'll talk about that in a second. What he was demonstrating clearly was the difference between internal and external salvation. Internal and external. He was all hung up on what he saw on the outside, but his heart was far from God. You know, when I was asked several years ago, the very first time anybody ever asked me this question, when did you become a Christian? I immediately went to that which I believed to be true at the time, and that was this. Well, I was baptized as a baby. When that didn't get a positive response, I went to the next one. The next one was, well, let's see, I received my first communion when I was third grade. When that didn't draw the response I was looking for, I went to, I was confirmed as a teenager. And then my ace card that I threw out was we were married in a church. Man, I was like, you know, no, 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 what? I'm out, man. I don't have any cards left in the deck. See, because I believed as Simon believed. 
that it was the external. What did he do? He said, hey, I'll sign up for that. And what do you have to do? You've got to be baptized? Okay, take me, dunk me, whatever. That doesn't matter. Hey, it's the old adage, it's this. You know what? Water baptism doesn't save anybody from sin. If you think it's going to save you from sin and, 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 and get you forgiveness with God and eternal life, you're mistaken. You're going into the water a dirty sinner and dry sinner. You go in, you come out what? A wet sinner. But you are still a sinner. That doesn't change your condition. See, Simon didn't understand that just going and being baptized wasn't going to change his heart. It was all in the external. See, his view of salvation is the view of so many in our culture today. It's ritualistic. It's external. It's, it's an additional thing that you do in your life, but it has nothing to do with transformation of the heart. Jesus said, man, you do all this stuff on the outside, you're all cleaned up, but your heart is far from God. Yeah, you go to church, you read your Bible, you're baptized, you're confirmed, you do the communion, you do all that, you do all the external things, but your heart is far from God. And none of those things, those good works that I call filthy rags, will ever gain you my forgiveness or eternal life. See, that's I sum it up between a relationship with God and a religious approach to life. And the religious approach to life is this. What do I got to do to reach up to God so that God considers me somehow worthy now to find whatever it is I'm looking for? The relationship approach is totally different. And I'll tell you why. The religious approach doesn't work. For it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so no one can boast. I work my way to heaven. God says, you can't do that. He says, but I'll reach down to you, and I'll reach down to you, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved people so much, and yet while we were sinners in rebellion and walking away from God, God reached down to us. Luke 19.10 sums it all up when Jesus said, For the Son of Man uh, came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was running after us, and we were running away from Him. That's why the greatest and easiest pursuit in life is the pursuit of God, because all we got to do is around, and He's right in our face. We don't have to change, chase God. He's not elusive. He's chasing us, and we're running from Him. Claiming that we're equal to God and we don't need Him many times. Sometimes we're just ignorant of the truth and we don't know and we've never heard. God is chasing us, hunting us down. And He loved us and He sent Christ into the world to die for our sins, for those who would believe. See, Simon didn't want anything to do with that. His was all external, not internal. He didn't have a transformed heart. You know, the book of James says that the demons believe and shudder. But also says faith without works is dead. Any man's in Christ. He's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. There's got to be transformation of a person's life. When you examine yourself, ask yourself the question, am I any different today than I was back then? Am I moving closer to God in my walk with Him and being convicted of my sin and looking and drawing closer to Him and being obedient to the Word of God? If I love God, Jesus says I'll obey His commandments. Am I moving in that direction or am I just the same as I've ever been? Even though I prayed a prayer or signed a card or did whatever, am I still the same person at heart? The Bible says if there's no life change, if there's no transformation, there's no saving faith. We cannot be the same as we were yesterday if we've come into an encounter with the God of the universe today. Simon's life 
didn't change. His heart didn't change and it will be revealed as we go through it. He didn't have a genuine saving faith. See, genuine saving faith is not found in external acts. Baptism, communion, confirmation, the sacraments, the circumcision, even obedience to the very laws of God won't save a person because the laws of God were designed by God to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. We can't keep His laws. The guy who thought he was totally obedient to God was exposed with one question. Sell everything you got and come and follow me. And he said, no. But you said you've obeyed all the laws. And the greatest law is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you don't put anything before Him. I'm telling you, sell everything. Now follow me. And he said, no. What did that do? It exposed a sin in his heart that God knew was there. The Bible says that the laws of God are tutor. is a tutor to lead us to salvation in Christ because we cannot keep the laws of God. Who hasn't lied? Who hasn't cheated? Who hasn't stolen in some way? Who has always honored their mother and father? Who has always kept God first in their life? Who hasn't coveted their neighbor's goods or their neighbor's wife? See something else that somebody else has and says, Man, I wish we had that. That is sin. See, God exposes that. See, the only way that we can have saving faith is we need to first recognize what God says about us is true. We are guilty of sin. Second, we're to repent, turn from sin and turn to God and throw ourselves upon His mercy. God, forgive me. For I'm not worthy, I'm a sinner. A broken and contrite heart God will never despise. We turn to God and throw ourselves on His mercy and we respond in faith to the finished work of Christ. I believe what you say that Jesus Christ died in my place on the cross. That He rose again three days later demonstrating the power of God and the authority that He has in His message that if we trust in Him that we'll be forgiven. If we receive Him we become children of God to those who believe in His name, John 1.12. That's genuine saving faith, the surrender of a person's heart. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it's the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with his tongue he confesses resulting in salvation. As we ask ourselves the question, is my faith a saving faith? You've got to ask yourself, is there a time in your life where you recognize what God says is true, that you're guilty, that you're a sinner, that you turned from sin and turned to God and threw yourself upon His mercy? They respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. I don't understand it, but I believe what you say that Jesus died for my sins and He rose again from the dead. And I receive Him as my Lord and as my Savior. The Bible says that that moment that we surrender our heart is the magical moment in our relationship with God when we become a child of God to those who believe in His name. And from that day forward, we will never be the same. It's impossible. See, Simon saw no need for forgiveness because he had a wrong view of himself. And that error led to the next error, which he had a wrong view of salvation. He thought he could work his way into heaven, or the external will take care of it. He thought it was all about the outside, nothing about the inside. He was looking to enter into a relationship with God through religion and not through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of those wrong views, he was far from God. The third thing is, he also had a wrong view of the Spirit. Notice this. In Acts, uh, you look at verses 14 through 21. It says, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent, they sent them uh, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he hadn't fallen upon them. Uh, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's important to realize that at this point in church history, for, uh, chapters 1 through 10, we find things that happen in this passage that happened once in all of human history, and that was it. 
The reason that they did not receive the Holy Spirit of God when they received Christ as their Savior was that God had a specific plan and purpose. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans had been estranged from one another for centuries. That if the Samaritans had received the Spirit of God, apart from that which was going on with the Jewish, with the, with the, with the church in Jerusalem, there would continue to this day have been a separation of two different churches. God in His infinite wisdom and His plan sent for Peter and John so that they could testify that what they saw was happening. We'll see that again in Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles come to faith in Christ, but they sent for the apostles so the apostles could go and verify that indeed what they saw was true. The Samaritans had received the same gift of the Spirit of God. Because of that, they would be united as one church. There's only one church. There's not several churches and all are baptized through faith in Christ into one body of believers. That's what's happening at this point. We cannot use this moment in time to come up with some theological argument as some people do that, hey, you, you receive Christ at one point in your life and then sometime down the, down the stream later on, you pray for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's very clear that there's one Spirit, one salvation, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There's no need to be praying for for the gift of the Holy Spirit because as we trust in Christ, the Spirit of God is given to us at that moment in time because it's the Spirit of God who regenerates a sinner into a saved person. Titus 3, 3-5 says, hey, it's the washing and regeneration of the Spirit of God. Jesus said, hey, you must be born again from above. The Spirit of God regenerates a dead person from a spiritual standpoint and makes them alive in faith in Christ. So we can't get off target here, but this is what was happening and that was the purpose. The, the, the context of the story has to do with focusing on Simon and his reaction to what was going on. Notice what happens. They began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw this, that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered the money. He said, that is one cool trick. Man, you know what? I've been in the magic store and i got all these different magic books and I had never seen that one before. What is it that I need to do that I can add that to my repertoire? French term, like it? That was good. But see, he, he's like, man, I saw that. I want that. What do I got to do? How much you got? He's like, how much you want? He thought he could buy the gift of the Spirit of God. Can you believe that people would think that? Hey, do we not live in a world today of people who think, um, how much money is it going to take for me to get and find God's forgiveness? Do I, do you, wait, you got a building program going on? How much money do you need? You got some chairs that you need for the church? How much money do you need? You know, you got some new windows that we need to do? How, how, much mo- I mean, what, how much money do you need for me to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit? See, Simon was ignorant of God's truth. And the point is very simple. What God has is never for sale. Think about it. Why would God need our money when it's actually His? Hello? Testing, you got that? Hey. Everything we got is His. So why would He want us to buy something with His own stuff? Hey, God's gift is not for sale. Nothing God has for sale, and certainly not the Holy Spirit. You cannot buy God's forgiveness. There are a lot of organizations out there raising a whole bunch of money, deceiving people into believing that somehow if you keep giving and you give us enough, then somehow God will be pleased with you. You know what? Keep them ignorant because it keeps the funds flowing. Can you imagine that? The term simony comes from this man's life throughout history. It's a term that has to do with buying spiritual favor. 
in the early Roman church, it was applied to indulgences. An indulgence was this, a way to raise money. But indulgence broken down worked like this. You got a problem drinking? Don't worry about it. That'll just cost you so much money. You got a problem with lust? Don't sweat it. That'll cost you so much money. You got a problem with coveting? Don't sweat it. Just give us so much money. It was the equivalent to our mulligan system in golf. Anybody ever go golfing? Anybody go to one of those golf tournaments where they offer you, would you like to buy some mulligans? Now what that is, for those who don't golf, is there's a table that's set up. And they say, look, you know what? You're going to make mistakes out there. We can tell just by the way you walked over here. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so what we're going to do is that we're going to sell you these tickets. You get so many tickets, and they're going to be so much per ticket. So that when you're out there, because the ultimate goal of the golf tournament is you're trying to win a prize. And so the only way, the only way you're going to win is you need help. <clears throat> they sell you a ticket. Maybe 10 tickets, 100 tickets. I've seen guys that, like, they got them the string. They're, they're trailing them, man. It's like every hole. It's like a bad shot. You go, okay, I want to use my mulligan. That one went into the woods, or that one went into the water, or, gee, I missed that putt. I'm going to use one of my mulligans. You break off the ticket, and you go, okay, that's, that's a do-over. That's a do-over. See, that was what was happening, and this guy invented the term. And the term was, I am going to buy favor from God by giving so much money, therefore God has to forgive me of what it is that I am weak in. The Bible says that's foolishness. And if you don't think the Bible says it's foolishness, it's interesting as we see this. You know, what's fascinating is we live in a day where people think they can buy God's favor. I heard a story not too long ago, and it had to do with the early days or the early movement of Calvary Chapel. And uh, we were talking about it the other day. There was a guy who came in the very beginning stages of when Calvary Chapel started. A guy who came to Chuck Smith and said, listen, I understand that you need some money. And Chuck said, yeah, you know, we could use some money. This is what we believe God is doing. The guy said, well, here's a, here's a check for a million bucks. And he looked at him and in his discerning spirit, he said, you know what, I appreciate what you just offered, but I can't accept that. And the reason for it in hindsight was that he wanted to make sure that it was God's leading and God's direction and not man's. Because one person can come up, write the check, and it's like, was this really of God or not? And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there would have been nothing wrong with taking it if he had felt the Lord leading him to do it. But just to make a statement that, you know what, I don't want that because two reasons. I want to make sure that God's in this. And the second reason is, you know what, maybe I'm not really sure where you're coming from and I don't want to confuse you. See, can you imagine taking money from someone that we don't know their spiritual condition and we just further complicate their belief that somehow they're buying their way into the kingdom of God? We need to be very careful about that. You and I cannot buy God's favor. Only a right view of self, a sinner in need of forgiveness, a broken and contrite heart. God won't despise. Salvation is a gift from God and, uh, so that none of us can boast. That's the reality of the gospel. And any questions about Simon's condition is answered in Peter's rebuke of Simon. Look what he says to him. This is very important in verse 20. He wanted to buy him. Strong contrast. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God through money. Is there any question as to his response. The bluntness, may your silver perish with you. The word perish is the same word that we find in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever will believe in Him will not, what? Perish. May your money perish with you. The original translation is a lot more harsh and it's this. To hell with you and your money. That's it. That's the statement. You will rot in hell with your money if you think that you can buy God's forgiveness. 
it's not surprising that Simon had a wrong view of sin as well as a wrong view of himself, salvation, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll wrap it all up with this. In verses 22 and 24, notice what, Simon, what, the, what he said. He says, You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness. What was the solution to his problem? Hey, turn from sin and turn to God. Turn from your sin of an inflated view of yourself that thinks you don't need forgiveness. Turn from sin of your wrong view of salvation that somehow you think it's an external matter, not an internal matter. Turn from your your wrong view of the Holy Spirit that you can buy the forgiveness of God because you can't. Repent and turn. The words that are used here are strong words talking about the gall of bitterness. You are in the gall of bitterness in the bondage of iniquity. It says turn. Turn from your sin and turn to God. But notice what he said. But, strong contrast. He was offered a chance to repent, but he didn't take him up on it. It says, but he answered and said this, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This man had a wrong view of sin. He was told to repent. His sin was exposed. And you know what he said? You know what? You pray for me. And let me just tell you something. None of us can pray away the sins of another human being's heart. There are organizations that teach us that when a person dies that they're somehow in between earth and heaven. And we just got to pray them into heaven. Somehow we pray them into heaven, we light candles for them, we do good works for them, we do all kind of stuff, and somehow through our efforts, we're going to shove them up and over the top. You know what? That is just foolishness according to biblical teaching. It's an individual who comes broken and contrite before God. I can pray that God would soften your heart. I can pray that you'd receive God's message. I can pray that your ears would be opened to biblical truth but I can't pray that God would forgive you if you're not broken and contrite of your sin. We can't pray anybody into heaven. And see, Simon, he had a misunderstanding of that. Well, if you're really in good with God, then you take care of that. You, You pray for me. There are people in our families and in our friendships who think that, hey, well, you maintain that relationship with God and when you see Him, you put in a good word for me. How ignorant is that? That's not what the the Bible teaches at all. Individually, we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or individually, we are condemned for all of eternity. None of us. It's not a group thing. Individually, we'll stand either before the great white throne judgment on our way to hell for those who do not believe. And individually, we'll stand before the beam of seat of Christ to be rewarded as believers for what we did subsequent to putting faith in Christ but it's an individual judgment for every one of us. See, true repentance consists of more than just being sorry for our sin. Judas was sorry for his sin. He was sorry he got caught. He was sorry he embarrassed himself. He was sorry for whatever, but he didn't have a sin. Uh, he didn't have a sorrow to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10 says, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. Simon had a wrong view of himself and of salvation, of the spirit and of sin, and all added up to a faith that did not save. In closing, the question still remains, and that's this, is yours a saving faith? There is no more important question that any of us can ever address in our life than that one question alone. Is the faith I say I have a saving faith? Do you have a right view of sin and of yourself that I am a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? Do you have a right view of salvation and that it's a gift from God so that none of us can boast? It's by grace we're saved through faith. That it's an internal work in our heart, not an external thing that we do. Do you have a right view that the Holy Spirit of God is not something that we can buy with all the money in the world? That, it's only, that He's only given to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are born again from above and washed and regenerated by the work of the Spirit? Do you have a right view of sin that we're to repent and turn from it and turn to God? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Realizing that He died in your place on the cross and that He rose again from the dead. Is there a moment in time where if a person asks you, when did you become a Christian, what would the answer be in your life? Would you spout the external? Or would you say, there's a day I surrender my heart to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? One last thought. We learn too that spiritual power cannot be bought. The pursuit of God and not power is what counts the most. Philip's great power came from the fact that he loved Jesus, pure and simple. When you love the Lord and you walk in obedience with Him, the power of God, the dynamite of God will be evident in your life. The pursuit of God is the greatest of all pursuits. Alexander McLaren put it this way, A heart right in the sight of God is the indispensable qualification for all possessions, possessions of spiritual power or of any blessings which Jesus gives. John 17.3 Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Apostle Paul says that I might know Christ and the power of His resurrection. The psalmist wrote, as, as the deer pants for the water's brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Is that true of your heart? Is that true of your life? If so, then God can use you greatly. Father, thank you for this time to be together. God, I just pray that uh, every one of us who hear these words will examine our hearts to make sure that we are indeed in the faith. I pray for those who have an inflated view of themselves, that they will see themselves as you do, lost and condemned. You say you didn't send your Son into the world to condemn it, for the world has been condemned already. That as a member of the human race, we are guilty by association with our father, Adam, who sinned before you, and through Adam's sin and death entered into the world. And the reason that we sin, the reason that we die is because we're sinners. The reason that we sin is because we're sinners. God, help us to see that reality so that when we understand it, we can turn to You and repent of sin and turn to You and throw ourselves upon Your mercy. God, we just pray that the, the message of the Gospel will be clearly proclaimed in a day and age where we're so confused about who we are as a people. That we would trust in Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that we can never buy our way into heaven. There's no good works that we can ever do but that you reached down from eternity in heaven and you sent your Son because you loved the world so much that you gave Him on our behalf so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I just pray that uh, if there are those today who have never trusted in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of sin, that they would do so today. 
You tell us a broken and contrite heart, God, you'll never despise. That today is the day of the Spirit as we hear His voice. Today is that day. God, and for the rest of us who at one time in our life have uh, committed our hearts to Christ, that we would become people who are sold out for You. That we follow You in every area of our life, that we walk in obedience with You so that You can use us in a mighty way to draw others to Christ. We pray that as they see our good works, that they will always glorify our Father who is in heaven. And we just thank you for this passage that teaches us clearly the difference between a saving faith and one that is a demonic faith, or one that is a counterfeit, to help us identify the difference between people who profess faith and those who actually possess it. And we just thank you for the clarity of your word, and that it is true what you say, that it is your desire that none would perish, but that all would come to everlasting and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.